Do you love language learning but feel deprived of meaningful connection? Project OLAS takes a unique and impactful approach to Spanish learning. OLAS connects learners with women, or OLAS moms, for conversational, relationship-centered Spanish sessions, all online through WhatsApp. OLAS moms are women who live in the communities surrounding the Guatemala City garbage dump. And through OLAS, moms can generate income safely from home. If you want to learn Spanish through relationship-centered learning, all while supporting inclusion for a community of moms in Guatemala, Project OLAS is for you. Visit them at www.projectolas.com and start learning for just $13 a session. You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 78, Speaking Mandarin and Russian. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. My guest this week is Kevin, who joined me to talk about two of his many languages, Mandarin and Russian. In this episode, Kevin talks about moving back to Shanghai as a kid and having to catch up to the language, even as someone who had regularly heard and spoke Mandarin at home. We talk about the languages and dialects of Mandarin and areas where they're spoken in China. Kevin talks about Shanghainese speakers and how this specific language is used and where we would most likely hear it in Shanghai. We talk about code switching between Mandarin and Shanghainese and some of the differences in tonality among Mandarin. We take a deep diversion into the Chinatown communities in New York City and talk about some of the Chinese languages you're likely to hear in each of them. Kevin also talks to us about studying Russian and his experience of being immersed in Russian culture during his time abroad. Big thank you to Kevin for sharing parts of your language journey with us. If you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Tongues, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts, or like and subscribe on YouTube so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. And if you've been a longtime listener of the show or even a recent listener, you can now support the show on buymeacoffee.com. Links to all platforms are in the show notes. Okay, let's chat. Welcome back to another episode of Speaking Tongues. I'm here today with Kevin. How are you today, Kevin? Hi, I'm good. Doing I'm well. I'm so happy to have you here and have an opportunity to talk about your languages. I like to start each episode with the same question, and that is, what is your first language and which languages have you learned to speak? Right. So as far as first language goes, I guess it's a tie between uh, English and Mandarin. Uh, I was born here in the States, but moved back to China as a kid. So I finished high school in a Mandarin speaking uh, school. And yeah, I'd say both of them are my first. I mean, nowadays living in New York on a day-to-day basis, I use uh, quite a bit more English. Um, so maybe, yeah, English has edged ahead a bit. But yeah, English and Chinese are my first languages. And then the foreign language that I've studied the most in depth would be Russian, which I took for two years in college. And then 
uh, lived in Russia for a summer, continued uh, studying it on and off, used Russian as a medium for studying other languages as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I'd say the language I practice the most regularly living in New York might be Spanish. And then, I don't know, there's a long list after that. But um, <laughs> yeah, French, Portuguese, German, uh, Serbo-Croatian, Hindi. Lately, I've been doing a good amount of Korean, uh, Japanese, I've studied uh, Turkish, Arabic, Hebrew. Yeah, I guess that those are the main ones that I actually conversational and there's like several others I've studied on and off. That's definitely a long list. (laughs) (laughs) How did, how did that happen? How do you, how did you get to all of these different languages? What sparked your interest in wanting to, to communicate in all of these? Well, I guess it started when my family moved back to Shanghai when I was 10 years old. And um, I mean, first of all, I had to sort of catch up on Chinese a bit um, since I like the dynamic with languages in our family before we went back to China was that my parents would speak to me in Mandarin or in Shanghainese, but I would just respond in English. So I sort of needed to catch up on Mandarin, first of all, when we went back to China. But like that, that took like maybe a semester, I guess. And I mean, that was sort of a fun experience, like picking up a new language, immersed mm-hmm. there, that environment. But after that, what really helped was that everyone else, all my classmates still had to take English class, and I was exempt as a native speaker. So yeah, while everyone else in school was still taking English, I started um, yeah, getting a bit interested in various other languages, um, got like a French textbook from the local bookstore. Um, Japanese, started on Arabic, didn't really get far, started on Russian, just on my own. Yeah, although I guess, yeah, as a <clears throat> as a high schooler living in Shanghai in the 2000s, there weren't really that many opportunities to practice these languages, like actively, mm-hmm. so it was mostly just like reading books and going on the internet a bit. I mean, I feel like it's become much easier to learn foreign languages on your own nowadays and it was like when I was in high school Um, but anyways that's when I started getting interested so um, once I came back to New York for college um, I ended up going with Russian for I was a linguistics major and one of the requirements for that is you take a foreign language and it can't be a western European language or like your native language I guess they consider I don't know I guess they consider, I don't know, French and Spanish a bit too, I don't know, easy is the easy. right word, but just like too, <laughs> just too similar, just like not different enough from English for the purposes of like getting like a broader sense of the variety of languages right. in the world, I suppose. Um, yeah, so did that for two years. After living in Russia for a summer, like I'd say that was like the first language I really got to like an advanced level at mm-hmm. from studying and that sort of helped a lot just with in terms of like confidence and just like having done it once it feels like it's easier to learn more languages afterwards especially with a language like Russian where the grammar is 
pretty messy and like complicated. Yeah. It sort of makes you think about how the parts of a sentence fit together and stuff like that. So after that, I sort of revisited Spanish and French and started adding on other ones like Persian. And after two years of Russian, I also took a year of Uzbek in college. I can't really actively speak it anymore, but I still understand quite a bit when I listen. Take me back for a second, because you said that when you mm-hmm. were with you were growing up with your you know and at your in your home with your parents yeah. and your mm-hmm. parents spoke shanghainese so yeah. is what is shanghainese is that is that like a is it a dialect is it a what is it <laughs> right i mean people generally call it a dialect i mean but it's like from a linguistic point of view it would not, it's definitely not a dialect of Mandarin. Like it's more different from Mandarin, or at least as different from Mandarin as I'd say Portuguese is from Spanish. Okay. Probably slightly more so, but just yeah, just culturally and I guess politically within China, it's generally like people talk about even Cantonese, um, or Hokkien or Hakka or whatever, all of those languages as being dialects of Chinese because the written language is generally the same. Like no one really writes books in anything other than Mandarin. So Shanghainese is part of, there are basically like seven or eight major so-called dialect groups of Chinese. Uh, Mandarin is the biggest one. I just Mm -hmm. checked on Wikipedia half an hour ago. It looks like like 70% of all Chinese speakers are native speakers of some variety of Mandarin. And then it's Cantonese. And then it's Wu, which is spoken sort of in the Yangtze River Delta region, which is where Shanghai is. Okay. So Shanghai belongs to the Wu, so quote unquote, dialect mm-hmm. family. And it's probably at this point the most representative uh, dialect slash language within the Wu group, just because it's the biggest city in the region. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really cool. So if you when you had to i guess when you moved back to shanghai or when you moved to shanghai when you were a kid and you were catching up what mm-hmm. kind of issues did you have between shanghainese and mandarin and i guess being in school and making new friends like how how was it to communicate between those two well in shanghai in school basically everyone is supposed to, at least in theory, just speak Mandarin all the time. It's like there's rules against speaking dialect in school. At least there were at the time. I think the policy has changed a bit since then. But yeah, when I was in school, like kids would sometimes speak Shanghainese to each other uh, during breaks between classes, but everything else was all the instruction was in Mandarin, all the news, and announcements and everything was in Mandarin. So it's not quite like, for example, the situation you'd see in Hong Kong where literally like everything is just in Cantonese, even in official situations in Shanghai and like in most of the mainland, mm-hmm. everything, everyone knows Mandarin. Right. And you would just uh, speak. So if I spoke Mandarin, yeah, everyone would understand me. Mm-hmm. And generally, especially later on in middle school, high school, we would always have like a few like, students from out of town um, in our class because like a lot of people, their parents would move to Shanghai and send their kids to a local school. And a lot of these kids didn't speak Shanghainese 
at all. So um, Mandarin was uh, the main language of school. Uh, okay. I guess the one place where Shanghainese was a bit of a barrier sometimes was with like family gatherings, like a lot of older people in Shanghai, just like they understand Mandarin, but can't speak it. And so like when we would go visit our, our grandparents or something, it would be like me and my brother would just speak to them in Mandarin and they'd respond in Shanghainese and we could sort of, we would understand each other, but it was just sort of a different dynamic there. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I guess another thing is just that because like there's no official, like no one studies Shanghainese in a classroom and actually learns like from a book, the correct pronunciation of Shanghainese words. Um, my pronunciation of Shanghainese was always a bit off. There were like various issues with, um, sometimes like you can, if you know the Mandarin pronunciation, you can guess what it probably sounds like in Shanghainese, but that's like mm -hmm. really not very reliable. So I would just like not really speak Shanghainese very much myself because like my pronunciation was <laughs> like not, not great. Mm -hmm. What do you think, or when you, when you talk about older um, family members, elders in your family, mm -hmm. not communicating in Mandarin, is that typical mm -hmm. of that generation? I think so. Yeah. Because I mean, a lot of these people, I mean, they went to school like before the founding of the People's Republic in 49. And so, yeah, everyone, like even like I've seen some like old videos from like schools in the Republican era, era in Shanghai. Like, yeah, like the teacher would just be teaching kids in Shanghainese. And that would just be like the language of instruction, the language that everyone used to communicate on the street. Um, but I mean, afterwards, sort of during the modernization process after 49, like like the authorities decided like the whole country should have one common language and mm -hmm. then Mandarin started being taught more in schools after that. Mm -hmm. I so see. yeah, older people just didn't learn it. In a place like Shanghai that mm -hmm. I imagine people from all over the world are living in this kind of, in this mm -hmm. metropolis, um, yeah. What what languages, Chinese or otherwise, are commonly heard? So, yeah, I'd say, well, Mandarin is definitely the primary language used for communication in Shanghai. Although one thing that I've noticed, like, recently, every time I go back to Shanghai and I'm just, like, going around town with my parents, like, when they walk into a shop, or like get on a taxi or whatever, they tend to just start the conversation in Shanghainese with like the driver or with like the, the waiter at the restaurant or whatever, and only switch to Mandarin if like the person responds in Mandarin. Otherwise, oh. like they'll just still do it in Shanghainese. Like, I mean, they grew up in the city. They sort of like, yeah, they, my parents, I feel like still mostly speak Shanghainese mm -hmm. to each other. And um, yeah, so there's still like that level of like people use it like in just sort of casual, like, but if you were like giving a lecture in a school or like if you're like a news broadcaster or if you're like 
Like if you're going to a yeah, bank like, or something or right, something yeah, official. Sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Even then, though, I feel like it's just sort of a mix. It really depends on like sort of the, the person, because like there are a lot of people not from Shanghai who have moved to the city mm-hmm. recently who don't necessarily speak Shanghainese that well. Does any type of, or maybe if you're aware of it, does any type of code switching happen between the Mandarin and Shanghainese? Uh, yeah, I feel like among my classmates in school, it was kind of common for uh, people to sort of, like even one, one thing I think that actually happens pretty commonly is people will be speaking in Shanghainese and then they, they have to say like some like sort of word that's really only used in official context or something. Mm. Then they're like, oh, I, I'm not actually entirely sure how to say that in Shanghainese. And they switch to using like the more, they just switch and say it in Mandarin because right. they don't actually know what it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. As far as Mandarin goes, um, yeah. what are some things that make Mandarin stand out from some of the other languages and dialects spoken in in China? Right. So I guess the main distinguishing factor, and I guess before I get into that, just to, there's, when we, when we say Mandarin, I guess it can refer to two different concepts. One is sort of like standard Mandarin that is like the official language of like mass media and officialdom in the People's Republic of China, that standard Mandarin. And then there's more broadly speaking, the Mandarin dialect group, which isn't just like the standard Mandarin is based on the the way people speak in Beijing. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are other dialects of Mandarin spoken across the North and also a bit in the West in places like Sichuan, Yunjingnan, which is like down by the border with Myanmar. And those are considered Mandarin dialects, but okay. they're not, they're not, the, they're, they're sometimes quite different from standard Mandarin, also right. known as in, in Chinese. But either way, um, the main difference between Mandarin or Northern dialects in general and dialects in the rest of the country is they phonetically they're just uh, simpler in a number of ways first of all they have like fewer tones like mandarin only has four or arguably five tones whereas like something like cantonese has something like seven or nine tones again depending on how you count them okay um so and another thing is also yeah that mandarin dialects don't have they mandarin has gotten rid of the so-called entering tone which is not really a tone it's like when we're like in mandarin a word can only end on either a vowel or an n or an ng like hmm. wang or wan or wa like only those whereas in a lot of dialects like in cantonese for example you can have words that end with like a k or a p or a t and those have all just disappeared in mandarin so like for example like the word for good fortune is like folk, like F-U-K, it ends on like a K sound. And that's sort of in Mandarin, just fu, like the, the final K just disappears. So whereas in like Shanghai, 
Chinese, for example, it's sort of like, because Shanghai is like right by sort of the southern edge of where Mandarin is natively spoken. So like mm -hmm. the Wu dialects, they sort of, it's not a K anymore, but it's not completely gone. It's sort of like a, uh, like a glottal stop. So it'd be like, like just like that. So in Mandarin, it's just like all these like P and T and K endings have all just disappeared. So it's just like more simplified. Right. Mm -hmm. How interesting. Do you know, and maybe you don't, mm -hmm. and if you don't, it's okay. Between these um, Northern dialects of Mandarin and this standard standard one that I guess mm -hmm. is used in a, an official capacity, um, yep. how, how different are those? Uh, my understanding is that some, one of the biggest differences is just that the tones are different. Like they're just pronounced with like, it'll be rising in standard Mandarin, but maybe falling or level in like the dialect of Shandong or whatever. That's like, I don't know, maybe more than 50% of the difference between different Northern dialects. Mm -hmm. Although at the same time in certain areas like Sichuan, which is sort of like down in the west sort of further south there are also maybe some differences in vocabulary and pronunciation of specific words um yeah but uh, my understanding is that the biggest difference is just like the tones are different okay that's really cool and i'm taking notes as you're talking because mm -hmm. <laughs> there's so much that i want to understand oh yeah and let me just ask you a general question because I'm I'm noticing as you're talking, mm -hmm. um, when you sometimes you're saying Chinese, and sometimes you're saying Mandarin, and I always feel self conscious about calling, just saying like Chinese because I know that there's so many different dialects that exist in China. What is the right thing to say, or what's the appropriate thing to say? Hmm. Is there yeah, an appropriate thing to I say? Feel like, <laughs> right. I feel like sometimes, I don't know, as a native speaker of Mandarin, my habit is just to refer to it all as Chinese. Okay. And maybe that's my Mandarin privilege showing or something like <laughs> a native speaker of Cantonese might think differently. But um, I mean, sometimes it's sort of, I mean, Chinese in my mind is like a broader concept. It's like, like Mandarin is a subset of Chinese like mm -hmm. Chinese includes Cantonese and I mean just like languages spoken in China I guess or even beyond but by people who like like in Singapore and whatever yeah I feel like usually when I talk about like the written language then saying Chinese is fine because like there's really just one widely accepted written mm. standard whereas when you get into sort of the, the specifics about speaking, then sometimes, yeah, saying Mandarin, like, yeah, I say Mandarin when it's like intended in contrast to some other variety right. of Chinese. Otherwise, like I sometimes just default to saying Chinese. Yeah, I'm, I was really curious. And I think because <laughs> maybe it, it's one of those things that I think about because most of the mm. people that I've known who speak um 
who are Chinese, I should say, mm-hmm. um, my Chinese friends, um, yeah. they all speak Cantonese. So right. it's, I, I never really had any exposure to Mandarin through them. And they were always mm-hmm. really adamant about, no, we speak Cantonese, we're from here. And, and what, what, you know, the things that our families do are, are different. So I've kind of picked up a little bit on that, but I just wanted to be clear and, you know, to yep. understand, like, not just to mm-hmm. say like, oh, it's, you know, it's just all Chinese and there's a lot there. So <laughs> I didn't want to put it under one, under one umbrella. Um, right, right, right. How about, what about things like, I hate using this word, but for lack of a better word, like slang or mm-hmm. just kind of the way that I guess younger generations talk. Like if you know anything about that, how, what does that sound like? What does that look like? What is it, you know, how do, how do people express themselves colloquially in Mandarin? Right. I guess I feel like that's probably an area where, there's a good amount of regional variety. Like even when speaking Mandarin in Shanghai in school, like when people were just joking around or like speaking less formally, it would be somewhat common to just stick in Shanghainese words uh, in conversation like that. I feel like as far as slang goes, one thing that I've sort of gotten a bit out of touch with regarding that is that I've been back in the States for now 12 years and a lot of the new internet slang, like just mm-hmm. like new words that are coined to describe new cultural, social phenomenon. Um, I'm not always entirely sure what they mean sometimes. <laughs> and the, so that, that's an area that's uh, developing pretty quickly. And I guess that's more probably national. It's not as much of a, because it's like, it's not restricted by geography of like slang historically would have been i'm sure that my listeners know um you know we're in new york city new york city has how many chinatowns do we have three four we have three or four a year ago a year ago i saw some like official city official date in some speech that there were five or like a a number larger than i thought was Mm -hmm. the case but um yeah i don't know there are yeah. three main ones that I can personally think of, but um, there might be some new ones. Yeah, and I, I think that's really amazing that there's there's there are so many. There's not just like the mm-hmm. one down in lower Manhattan, but with all of these Chinatowns comes so many Chinese people from so many different parts of China and mm-hmm. the the um, the Chinese diaspora. Are there, so of all, like, let's, let's just narrow it down to like Chinatowns, not that, you know, Chinese people are Mm -hmm. not everywhere, but I guess I wonder, are there places where you're more likely to find people from one, uh, from one region of China? Um, Maybe you'll find restaurants or shops and stuff that specialize in regional cuisine or regional um, traditions Mm -hmm. of one part. And then if you go to a different Chinatown, maybe let's say in Flushing, um, maybe that's more, I don't know, more Cantonese, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. like something like, is, is it, do you encounter things like yeah, that? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the three, the main, I feel like in my mind, the, the main distinguishing factor 
between the two Chinatowns, besides one being in Manhattan, one in Queens, and one in Brooklyn, is that the dialects spoken there are different. Like, mm. lower Manhattan Chinatown, the, the original Chinatown of New York, it's very heavily, even now, uh, Cantonese-speaking, although I feel like nowadays all like the people who work at restaurants and whatnot have learned Mandarin just for the sake of being able to speak with visitors from the mainland. Um, mm. But yeah, historically, that's like the, the Cantonese area. And not just Cantonese, like even within Cantonese, interestingly, there's like a good amount of dialectal variation. And historically, the main dialect of, of that Chinatown, and really, I think, Chinatowns across the U.S. before like 1960 or so was called Toy Chinese or Hoi Chinese, which is from like basically like a cluster of towns like near Canton, Canton being the capital of uh, Guangdong province. Mm -hmm. And that dialect is like very different. First of all, the, the city is called like Taishan in Mandarin, but it's called Hoi San in the dialect. All the, the the T's become H's and then the D's disappear and then the Ch's become T's. There's like a whole chain of like sound changes mm. that make that make that specific dialect um, quite different from, okay. from stan standard Cantonese. So historically okay. that was a thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Flushing, which I think is a bit newer, um, might have started, my understanding is that like before like the 80s or so, it was there was like a cluster of like um, Korean migration there, but now it's sort of like, as like Chinese immigrants have started to like fill in the area around the flushing Main Street subway station, you have like a ring of Korean <laughs> around like <laughs> the center, which is more, I think flushing is like the most varied in terms of like where people come from in China. Like okay. they're, they're from all over China. So you have a lot of, I mean, people from Taiwan also, from Shanghai, from various parts of the north. Um, so yeah, that's where I think Mandarin is much more commonly used. And then, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, just because it's like more of a mix and more new compared to the historical Chinatown in Manhattan. And then the third one, which I personally have maybe only been to once or twice myself is in Brooklyn, I forget exactly where, like around Sunset Park, 8th Avenue. Yeah, yeah. That area. And um, that's also quite distinctive in that most people there speak Fuzhouese, which oh. is like the dialect of northern Fujian province, which is just like, it's like incomprehensible to speakers of any other dialect. Um, it, because like, yeah, Fujian um, province, which is like sort of between Zhejiang where the Wu dialect and like Shanghainese is spoken and Guangdong where Cantonese is spoken. Fujian is like the province that's like right across the strait from Taiwan. Right. And it's very mount mountainous. There's like, so like every single village has like its own dialect because like there was historically like communication between areas was like a bit restricted um yeah like there's a ton of variety in dialects there and they also split off from like the rest of the chinese 
language family mm -hmm. like a bit earlier so it's mm -hmm. like pretty distinctive yeah um, and especially Fuzhou which is also like like in the dialects of like the south of Fujian province are pretty closely related to dialects spoken in Taiwan and in a lot of Southeast Asia the so-called mm -hmm. Hokkien whereas yeah northern Fujian is like a whole separate language situation and um I've tried to I've tried to find books to learn the base it's like impossible to find also there's not really that much resources out there oh no that's like, that's, mm -hmm. but that's like a huge chunk of um sort of yeah Chinese immigration I think it's so cool that in New York City we have this kind of like access to so much Chinese culture so much varied Chinese culture and I as a non-Chinese American I wish I knew more about and I'm and I'm saying this because I'm glad that you're 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 telling me some of the history and some of the migration mm -hmm. patterns and and the languages spoken in these different parts because as a non-Chinese speaker as a non-Chinese American like I I would have no way of knowing and mm -hmm. I think that it's really amazing that you can go someplace like Flushing and you can experience something totally different than if you went all the way down to Brooklyn and, mm -hmm. um, you know, experience a, a, a culture that is, is from a completely different region of China. I think that's, that's such a beautiful thing. Um, mm -hmm. So let's switch gears for a second. Let's talk about Russian because you said that you Russian is your is one of your strongest languages, and you mm -hmm. you studied it for a bit um, in school. and And what was what was that experience like um, when you started to learn the Russian language? Right. I mean, it was a pretty intense uh, language course that we had. Um, an hour a day, five days a week, plus an extra hour on Thursdays for like a lecture specifically about grammar for like two whole years. So it was like one of the, it's like a five credit class at, in college. It was like pretty time consuming, but uh, yeah, it was um, compared to like, I think other language classes offered at my school. It was, um, yeah, it's definitely sort of by necessity because of like how complicated the language the grammar is that you had to put a bit more mm -hmm. time into it but um yeah I, I I mean I had like dabbled in the language a bit before like I already knew Cyrillic coming in to the intro class on Russian oh that's and, helpful yeah mm -hmm, <laughs> definitely and yeah, it was interesting also because like all of our teachers that we had were not like native Russian speakers, which the theory was that it was sometimes helpful for like your teacher to also like know what is actually hard about Russian because they've experienced it themselves. Whereas mm. a native speaker of Russian in particular oftentimes like has no idea like why you use like genitive case with this number word, but a different case with another number word or th things like that mm -hmm. at the time like at one point my goal was just to like learn like the five I think or once I count them on the, the, the official 
working languages of the United Nations. So like I already had English and Chinese down natively, had been dabbling in French and Spanish for a bit. And right, so there were six. The last two were Russian and Arabic. And Arabic class was already full by the time like I was able to register for <laughs> classes. So uh, it ended up being Russian. Okay, so that's pretty intense that you had with your with your Russian studies. Um, and then you said you went to you went to Russia to study as well. Yes. Um, so after right after two years of studying Russian in college, um, I got this uh, scholarship from the State Department, actually called the uh, they have a program called the uh, Critical Language Scholarship. Mm-hmm. They like send students abroad to uh, study various languages that are on the one hand considered important for U.S. foreign policy, but on the other hand, like not many people study. So like they had besides like Russian, they also ha- they would also send kids to like well college students to like Turkey to study Turkish or even to like other to study Azerbaijani or like to India to study Hindi and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, me and about 30 other students were sent to a relatively small town in Russia called Ufa, which is the uh, capital of the Republic of Bashkortostan, which is a member of the Fe- Russian Federation, but at least in principle sort of has like a higher level of autonomy than a province does hmm. and still on the european side of russia like right by the ural mountains like not too far from kazakhstan for example mm-hmm. so um yeah i think they intentionally just sort of sent us to like sort of off the beaten path places so that we wouldn't just like i just imagine like if they sent like a bunch of students to just study russian in moscow or petersburg but like, people would just find ways to speak English right, all the time right. and their time off. <laughs> but um, yeah, in Ufa, not so much. So in the time that you were, you were learning Russian here in the States and then you mm-hmm. went to Russia to live and you were completely immersed in Russian language and in the culture, how, how was that experience? Like, did you, because I know that like sometimes we learn in the classroom and then we go on our field trip and we experience the language and there's so much that we learn that we didn't even know that we didn't know. Um, mm-hmm. were, were there things in the language and in the culture that once you got there, you're just like, okay, like I really got to catch up or I have to, you know, um, figure out what this means. Like, did you have any of those moments? Yeah, definitely. I feel like, yeah, just some, some of the things about like how to get around on a daily basis, like basic things, like how much does this cost or like stuff like that. There's like, there's like a textbook way to say it and like a way that people like actually say it in like mm-hmm. in a store or something. And um, yeah, and I mean, after just two years of Russian, like we hadn't gotten through all of the grammar yet. So like it helped that we had like, still had language classes in the morning to go over some of the things like conjugation uh, the declension of numbers and like some finer points like that mm-hmm. and I guess yeah a bit of slang which I even now like I've sort of I guess maybe about 
a couple months ago, I've sort of, sort of started getting back into like trying to get my Russian to like the next level, like to more advanced level. Cause I can, I can read like nonfiction mm-hmm. and like the news and whatever and listen to like talk shows and understand what people are saying. But sometimes like in more informal situations, yeah, there's a good amount of slang mm-hmm. that takes a bit of getting used to. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really, I think that's really interesting. And um, I always think about things like that because like like for me with French, for example, um, there are times that, you know, I, I've studied French here in the US and then I go to France and I'm just mm-hmm. like, what? are people saying and why are they saying it so quickly and (laughs) it's funny as you mentioned you know going to the store and and buying things and I always my I always have a problem with numbers like Mm -hmm. once I get to a number like I it's weird I was thinking about this the other day like I know the number and how I'm supposed to say the number and obviously I know what the number looks like but when somebody says it to me and like I have to go pay for something I'm like I cannot figure out like what number is this and how much money I'm supposed to give them. It's just, it's just like a weird like breakdown that my, my brain has when like <laughs> when I hear the number versus, um, you know, actually seeing the number or someone saying it to me. So I always have like disconnects like that. Um, I, I think that, yeah, that's a thing that I've heard other people say also just in terms of language, like numbers for some reason are just a thing that usually trips you. I guess, especially like if you're just like learning by like reading, like when you just see a number written, you don't really, your brain, I guess, doesn't go through the effort of actually like pronouncing it out in the, in the language sometimes and just sort yeah. of like, yeah, I understood that. And then moves along. But yeah. <laughs> and also like, yeah, some, some numbers I feel like don't come up that much in yeah. I don't know literature or whatever like yeah. specific numbers. I, don't know. <laughs> I remember talking about that with um, Carlos, uh, Doctor Yema mm-hmm. Lopez, about how oh, yeah. numbers can just completely trip us up. And for a long time, I thought it was just me, but you know, it, mm-hmm. it's not just me. So I feel I feel better about that. <laughs> I want to know, and you you have such an extensive history with so many other languages. Um, is there anything that maybe in the grammar and the structure of any other languages related or not related that helped you to understand the grammar and the structure or maybe some of the other rules or vocabulary of Russian? Did you have anything to lean on as you were as you were studying the Russian language? Um, I think for the most part, it's been the other way around. Like once I got Russian out of the way, it helped with uh, plenty of other languages. But I guess one thing is that when I was in high school, like in addition to like learning like real, like modern languages that people speak nowadays, I had attempted to learn a bit of Latin, slightly less like ancient Greek mm-hmm. on my own in high school. And I remember just when I was like, studying Latin I was like wow no wonder no one speaks this anymore the grammar is too complicated (laughs) how how do you have six cases in a language and expect people to just be able to have like day-to-day casual conversation but then I started learning Russian I was like wow people still speak languages that are this complicated (laughs) to this day so I guess 
on, in, on that level, just having like dabbled even a little bit in like Latin or whatever helped just in terms of like the concepts of like what is going on with like the dative case or the instrumental case in Russian. Yeah, but I guess, yeah, like, like I said, for the most part, I feel like having done Russian earlier has helped a lot more with other languages. That's good to know. It's funny, as you're saying, like, Latin has six cases, I'm like, Hungarians, like, hold my beer, because... <laughs> right, yeah, although I feel like really Hungarian cases, I've studied, like, Hungarian a couple of times, I've been to, like, Budapest, like, twice, and, like, every time I'm always like, great, I have an excuse to actually study some because, like, usually, like, Hungarian doesn't really seem worth the time to study, but if I'm like, oh, I'm going to be in Budapest in a month, then I have an excuse to uh, dabble in some Hungarian. And it's always like, yeah, I think it's the cases in Hungarian or like in Turkish or something, in some ways, aren't that bad. I don't know. I feel like they're just like, they're like prepositions, basically. Like you just mm. tag something on at the end of a word and maybe change it based on vowel harmony Yeah. or something. But uh, yeah, with yeah, I guess it's just a bit different. Yeah, and in Russian, it's also like this, there's a lot of irregular nouns that the, when the case changes, like sometimes you add an ah, sometimes it's an ooh, sometimes mm-hmm. the stress jumps from the beginning to the end of the word. Mm-hmm. But another word that's shaped like has the same general shape doesn't have the stress shift, and it's right. just like a lot of exceptions you need to learn. Yeah. But also. And I also imagine, you tell me, but I imagine that in a language that has so many cases that there are probably some that are used more frequently than others and maybe others that are maybe only used in maybe literature or written or formal text. Is that true? I'd say for Russian, not really. Even like what I guess would be like the rarest case like instrumental is still like used pretty frequently when you're just describing what you're like I'm drinking with a with a spoon or like I am or this was done by someone that's also instrumental mm-hmm. or like or like even like just for the verb to be sometimes like the thing that you're being that, that you are is an instrumental case and so, so yeah I feel like yeah, with something like Hungarian or Finnish or something, I feel like, yeah, when you go down the list of like 20 some cases, like some of the lower ones seem like they don't get used that often. But mm-hmm. with the Russian, I feel like, yeah, the six cases sort of, I mean, of course, like a nominative for the subject and accusative for the object get used a lot more. Right. But um, yeah, even like the rarer ones, like prepositional and instrumental get used a bunch. I guess specific combinations of like a word and a case and like you have to know like when the stress shifts or not sometimes yeah individual yeah words like that can be rare sometimes. So with all of the the languages that you've that you speak that you've dabbled in that you've um, you know a few words here and there in and everything in between what are some things that have helped you to find success in in some of the languages that you've gained fluency in? I guess when I think about the languages that I actually 
speak like well like i'm able to like have like normal conversations on various topics and i think the real difference has just been the ones that i actually have an opportunity to speak so like spanish <laughs> and french and i mean i have a good amount of friends who like to study german also and stuff like that so that's probably whereas like others like i've like studied like indonesian or swahili or various like like that just there's not many speakers of those languages in new york city at least they're a bit harder to find at the very least so mm -hmm. those end up being like wow i'm really interested in this language but then it's just sort of like finding opportunities to practice yeah so i feel like yeah it's also just like a lot of times it just ends up coming down to like the amount of resources for studying these languages like i started around the same time about two years ago trying to start learning um korean and shortly after i started also like trying to dabble a bit in vietnamese mm. and now like two years down the line like i'm like conversational in korean and far from conversational in vietnamese just really? because there's so much this is just so much more material there like like on netflix there's like endless like korean shows that you can watch with like korean and english subtitles That's true. and just yeah. like just the amount of exposure you can get and also just like textbooks also they they cover like beginner level intermediate there's like with a lot of languages like i've dabbled in the problem has been like you can finish like the intro textbook but then there's still like a gap between the end of that textbook and the beginning of being able to actually talk to people right and there's just like not much out there to fill that gap with some less common languages mm -hmm. so really yeah it just comes down to like tons and tons of exposure that ends up being like the key mm -hmm. yeah i noticed that too like with vietnamese and i've heard people say before like it's it's difficult to um it might be somewhat easy to find like very beginner material but then mm -hmm. after that the more advanced intermediate stuff is either hard to find or the quality is kind of sketchy <laughs> so mm -hmm. it can be hard for people i guess to advance in that what are some things about mandarin uh and russian and the languages that you would want people to know that you um that, so what are some things that you would want people to know that they may not necessarily be aware of yeah for russian i feel like i don't know there's been so many times i run into people are like oh wow you learned russian that must be so hard just looking at the alphabet it looks hard and i'm like yeah <laughs> like the 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 writing of russian is like far from it's like i've made a list of things that are hard about russian like the alphabet i don't know if it would be the top 10 even <laughs> it's just um it's like i mean half the letters are like it's like about as hard as i don't know the greek alphabet like it has a pi mm -hmm. it has like a row it has like it's like a third of the letters are the same as English letters. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just sort of the grammar of Russian, but besides the cases also, like the, the whole verb system is quite different from how, like the verb system of Slavic languages in general is like pretty interesting and different from, from how like Western European languages work. It's not, it's like yeah. it's, instead of tenses, it's like sort of centered around a concept of aspects, like whether or not this action 
completed. I guess it's a bit contemporary, kind of like imperfect, imperfect versus simple past mm-hmm. in some Western European languages, but it's sort of like the way like you have like for every verb, you have to learn two verbs. Like one, like they're usually related in some way, but it's not like there's not a, a single rule. Like you add a, a prefix, but it's like a different prefix for each verb that you right. just have to remember, like two forms of each verb. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting. Yeah, I guess an interesting thing about Mandarin, I think of it, that's sort of part of the reason, I guess, why Mandarin is the way it is, like sort of like phonologically simpler, has fewer tones, dropped off a lot of the ending sounds. Mm-hmm. A theory that I hear gets thrown out a lot is just that it's sort of like because of the influence from the north of like the Mongols and then the Manchus later, just sort of like a lot of like cultural mixing with like non-Chinese groups coming in from the north who for like extensive periods of time also ruled over like basically all of China that sort of like contributed to sort of like the more dramatic language like mm-hmm. language change in Mandarin compared to other because it's sort of also because it was like used of a language of like international inter-ethnic communication sort of contributed to it being a bit more simplified than yeah. some of the southern dialects but at the same time it's also like like yeah the languages like Manchu or Mongolian or Korean or like Tur- like languages on the north side of China grammatically are like very different from Chinese mm-hmm. they're like whereas like on the south side of Chinese you've got like Vietnamese and Thai and those are all kind of like I mean even though they're not not really related at all just like the way things work like single syllable words with tones mm-hmm. and just like they're, they're just like more like Chinese so which makes it sort of a interesting like yeah the environment of like language context in right. the south and the north is quite different yeah Kevin thank you so much for having this conversation with me and for for talking so much about your languages um I like to end each episode on the same mm-hmm. question and that oh, is yeah. <laughs> that is do you have any jokes tongue twisters cool slang words idioms words of wisdom or words of advice in mandarin or in russian to share uh yes i actually heard something for both um the chinese one we were talking about earlier about how mandarin is sort of like phonetically simplified and like not as complicated as other Chinese dialects. A good example of that, and it's this uh, poem, this Chinese, well, not really a poem, it's more of a, like a prose text actually written in classical Chinese, where every single word in this poem, which is, it looks like it's maybe 50 characters long, mm-hmm. is shi, but with different tones. So shi mm-hmm. or shi or shi or shi. And like the story is about a poet by the surname Shi, who likes eating lions and goes to the market to buy 10 lions. Anyways, I'll, I'll send you a link. It's the English name of the poem is Story of the Stone Grotto Poet, like a mm. poet living in a grotto of stone. Anyways, cool. just so you hear what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. 
it's a oh, 时事时事时事时事。Okay, I don't feel like doing this whole thing, but that's, that's, that's the general. That's the general vibe of this poem, and it's just like it. Part of it's just like it's not just the question of like, wow, tones change the meaning of things, because also like some of these characters, like they're different characters, but they're just pronounced the same and have the same tone. So it's like also like shows sort of the importance of like the characters, like seeing something written sometimes. Like it's needed to actually, but also I think another point of this poem is why people don't use classical Chinese anymore because this is an even bigger problem in the classical language. I feel、right. like than it is like in modern written Mandarin,、mm-hmm. you wouldn't ever write something like this because you would, the sentences would just be like a bit longer and more. It would be clearer what things meant. Yeah. But um. Yeah. What, what year is that poem from? Pretty new. Well, as far as Chinese history goes, it was written in the 1930s like, okay. by a, a linguist who was just trying to like demonstrate some of the challenges of like trying to like when people were debating whether they should simplify Chinese characters or just switch to like a Latin-based script or like、yeah. whether they should continue using classical or move like a, so. I mean, yeah, an example like this illustrates a lot of the problems because also like. These words that all are pronounced like shi or shi or shi or shi in Mandarin, half of them are pronounced differently in like Cantonese or in any other Chinese dialect. So、mm-hmm. it's just like they all merged into like one sound, right? In Mandarin. Okay. As far as Russian goes, I thought of a funny one, which is、um, a few minced oaths. I think that's the technical term. Like when you want to say a swear word but you don't want to say the swear word. Like、mm-hmm. in English, when you say like "fudge" yeah, or "shoot"、right. or something, those are funny in Russian because, I mean, first of all, in Russian, it's like the, the attitude, at least officially, towards profanity is much stricter. I feel like than than in the United States, at least, where like in movies, I think, or like it's like illegal to use actual swear words in、oh, movies、wow. at all.、Um, But anyways, it's it's funny that the the words they came up with to replace the swear words. One of them means pancake, and it's just blin, b l i n, blin, and that's like sh- yeah, <laughs> and it literally just means pancake. But it's like it's a replacement for a different Russian word that means something a bit more、um, profane.、Mm-hmm. And then there's also the word chien,、uh, which means horseradish, literally. Chien. But it's also <laughs> a euphemism. For、uh, a swear word in Russian, and、um, yeah, I thought those were just like funny as examples of how they just found these words that oh, this sounds. I'm hinting at a swear word here, but I'm just going to say pancake <laughs> or horseradish instead. That's so cool. I never really think of things like that because I think. A lot of us just go straight to the swear words and what some of the most like vile insults、mm-hmm. are, but we,、right. I think we forget that,、um, you know, in places of decorum, that people、mm-hmm. do use euphemisms or they use、right. other words instead of these horrific, horrific insults. So、mm-hmm. that's funny. That's really funny. <laughs> Pancake. Yeah, I think- and I mean another thing about just. The system of swear words in Russian is that they like because in Russian you can de- derive 
verbs from nouns by adding all sorts of different prefixes and like different so like like there's can be like dozens and dozens of like sewers sharing like the same root mm. and like one can mean like awesome and one can mean like terrible just depending on like what like prefix or suffix you add onto it mm-hmm. it's like quite elaborate but also it's <laughs> quite hard to find materials like I found this book of like Russian swear words a few months ago and like the the, the preamble to this book was like the author apologizing <laughs> the intent of this publication is not to debase or something on those lines yeah <laughs> to debase the culture but rather to provide additional insight into <laughs> the roots of the Russian. it was like they had to like apologize for writing like a swear word a dictionary of swear words how polite <laughs> <laughs> oh that's really funny well kevin thank you again for this conversation and i learned so much i took so many notes and i have a lot of more reading to do <laughs> after this um thank you again for for talking talking with me about your languages uh really quickly before i let you go um, don't mm-hmm. think about this too hard, but in this situation where we've been talking for some time and it's, you know, it's time to part ways, what would be mm-hmm. the best way to say goodbye in any of your languages? Just the first mm-hmm. thing that comes to mind. <laughs> well, Russian, the usual Russian way of saying goodbye is interesting, sort of, for the literal meaning. They just say paka which means, well, it literally just means for now, I guess, or yeah, sort of like a- Paka? Yeah, P-O-K-A. With Paka. Stress. Mm-hmm. Okay. But well, when, when O isn't stressed, it's pronounced as an A also, so it's basically Paka. Okay. Paka, but, Kevin, uh, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you again. And I'll be talking to you soon. Yep. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye.